Dakota. Thanks for joining the uh, podcast, The Psychology Report. School shootings. That's my topic. School shootings. You know, we have seen a significant increase in the number of school shootings over recent years. As an example, there were only three school shootings from the year 1966 to 1975, a nine-year period of time. However, from 2002 to 2015, another nine-year period of time, 19 school shootings were carried out. So we're seeing a very significant increase since 1966. What's going on? What's happening? Well, recently I came upon the research and the work of uh, Dr. Peter Langman, a psychologist, Langman, L-A-N-G-M-A-N. By the way, he has a very nice uh, website, and if you're interested in the issue of school shootings or these mass shootings that are taking place, go to his website, schoolshooters.info, schoolshootings.info, I-N-F-O, period. And uh, that website will give you a little bit of information and knowledge. He has a very extensive website on this particular topic and summarizes a lot of research and summarizes a lot of these incidences that have happened. So if you're interested, there's a source for you to read about. Or just Google Peter Langman, and you'll certainly uh, find him there, okay? Yet at the same time that it's increasing, it's still relatively rare. The number of mass school shootings is estimated to be only one out of every 10 to 20 million people, or, or perhaps even more than that. So it's, not, it's a relatively rare incident where a shooting takes place at school and somebody is killed, whether it's a lone killing or it's a mass killing. Uh, one out of every 10 to 20 million. So the incidences were up to about 19, maybe 20 if you can round it off. Uh, but it doesn't involve many, very many people. But that doesn't mean that it's not very significant or that it's not important or that's not something we should be concerned with. Of, of course. Even one life is worth it. So we need to take a look at kind of the research and some of the thinking and some of the findings of uh, Peter Langman, who has really studied this thing quite extensively. Let me give you a couple uh, issues, and we'll just kind of summarize the findings relatively uh, quickly here, okay? What are some of the common myths about school shootings? Well, most of the time we believe that it's the kid who bullies or who is a victim of bullying, right? Well, that's not the case. Although that happens, that's not the uh, majority of them. That's not the pattern. Or we have the myth that these are uh, juveniles uh, who commit crimes of all kinds, and this is just another crime that they commit. Well, first of all, adults do this just as much as juveniles, so it's not necessarily juveniles. And um, these are not necessarily people who, who are involved in all kinds of crimes. A lot of them don't even have a criminal record. So that's not true. Sometimes the, the myth is that it's only boys that do this. No, girls can pull the trigger, and they do. Although about 95% of all school shootings are done by men, or by boys, by males. Okay? And another myth is that we think they're loners. Well, they're not. Many of these kids are very involved in the uh, school itself. If they become a shooter, they, in one case, this 15-year-old boy in Washington State, 
uh, was a shooter, and he was a homecoming prince. Obviously, a kid who was well regarded and well respected, and a lot of friends, and yeah, he became a school shooter. So it isn't necessarily the lonely, you know, kid. Uh, this can be a right. So there's really no pattern. There is no really exclusive pattern by saying, okay, if a shooting takes place, go get the kid who is bullied, or go get the kid who bullies, or go get the boy, the girl, or go get the the loner. That's you can't do that. We don't have a profile of that nature. So it's it could be anybody, if you think of it that way. But it's a starting point. We have to kind of look at what are the issues that give you a starting point, at least where not to look, or where to kind of begin to focus your attention. What are the psychological traits or the patterns of people who are school shooters? Well, there's three, okay? One is what we call the psychopathic personality, psychopathic personality. There's no sense of right and wrong. If he's wrong or he's done something inappropriate or committed a crime or told a lie, there's no guilt. There's no anxiety. There's no shame. In other words, they're very cold people with very little emotionality. And they do no wrong because there is no wrong. There's no definition of wrong. So that's one group of what we call the psychopathic personality. And then we have a second group, which we call the psychotic people, the psychotic kids who or adults who are become school shooters. They're not really fit in, re in reality. These are psychotic people who distort reality, who don't know what reality is, and have all kinds of concocted ideas of what is right and wrong or what they should do or who tells them what to do. And many of the psychotic individuals are led to do something by a voice that they hear. And then there's a third group, what we call the traumatized school shooters. Traumatized. These are people who have gone through various kinds of trauma, horrendous family trauma, horrendous personal trauma, to the point that they lose a sense of control over themselves. They become extremely mad, extremely angry. They become extremely depressed. They become extremely anxious. And they, 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 they live with trauma in their background. Sometimes it's multiple traumas, not just one trauma, like a major death or accident. But it could be multiple, you know, traumas that they've experienced, the various types of abuse and stress and trauma that's gone on in, in their life. So, um, but you know, when you look at some of these people, the psychotic individuals and the psychopathic individuals often come from homes that are relatively intact. Now, there may be a divorce, there may be a remarriage and so on, but the family is relatively functional. And, um, but when you look at these traumatized kids or traumatized adults who become school shooters, they often come from a home background that is extremely dysfunctional, a home that is known for violence, a home that's known for its dysfunctionality, a home that is known for its uh, history of crime or criminal behavior. They are in the low end of the economic spectrum of, uh, of, of uh, income. Uh, so the psychopathic person, the psychotic path, you can't really tell because they relatively are intact. But it's this traumatized kid. That's the one that is more at risk, and that's kind of where you begin to look when you look at these uh, school shooters and you know, who they are and if somebody's at risk or not, okay? Now, what are the factors that contribute? 
What are some of the factors that contribute to a school shooting? You know, how does it, why does it happen? Why does it happen today? Why does it happen now? Why didn't it happen a week ago or a month later? Or what, you know, why, what's the triggering event, to use a pun, what's the triggering event that brought about the school shooting at this point in time in life? Well, for, take a look at adolescent. If the adolescent is a, a school shooter, it's probably the kid that was just dumped by his girlfriend, whose parents are divorced or just in the midst of divorcing, and dad walks out of the home, mom runs away, you know, he just got a failing grade, a school teacher just yelled at him, you know, some kid just beat him up in the parking lot, uh, one thing after another, uh, driving and maybe gotten a ticket, and, and uh, so on, I mean, just all the various things that could go wrong, go wrong, and a kid just breaks, he can't handle it, he can't fathom, he can't process, he can't, uh, he can't handle all the problems and the uh, difficulties that he's now facing by virtue of all these things that have happened to him and around him. Many of the things are not because of him, but because of the things that happen in his life, and therefore he breaks down because he didn't have the skills to handle, he didn't have the skills to process stress, didn't have the skills to handle trauma, didn't have a support system in his life to help him through these situations. He was abandoned, left alone. That's the adolescent kid. The adult is kind of in a similar situation, but the factors are different. For an adult, it's usually in a financial failure or distress. It's usually an, an occupational failure or distress. It's usually a failure of marriage and distress. So it's usually marriage, occupation, and finance for adults. And if all three of those things happen at once, there are lots of people, men and women, who can't handle it, can't process that. And they just break down and begin to take out their anger and their frustration in any way they possibly can. And school shootings could be one of those because there's a target in that school somehow that they still remember and identify. So when it, but when it comes to these uh, young adults, now let's take about age 20 to 25, age up, up to age 30, and there's a lot of them. Why do they become the school shooters? Well, they are often somebody that follows a role model. The role model might be Hitler. The role model might be some other well-known killer, you know, from history. Or they might watch a movie, a movie such as The Natural Born Killers. And all that does is put into their mind and put into their uh, readiness a way to act if they get stressed one more time. So these 20-year-olds usually have some kind of an ideal role model that they're going to follow and they're going to emulate and become like and maybe have all the heroism of that particular role model. Sometimes it's in a movie, the role model in a movie that shoots up everybody and that's who they think they are and that they who they think they can become, kind of that f fictional role model that they identify. So there are, it's circumstantial. They don't just wake up in the morning and go and shoot somebody. It's usually somebody who's been under an enormous amount of circumstantial pressure and stress and trauma and the unpredictable failures and rejections and uh, mistreatment 
and abuse and trauma that they are there now experiencing. Okay? Now, what about the victims? What about the Who are the victims of these school shooters? Well, they're often an administrator or a particular teacher or maybe a school counselor. The victims, at least the target, they're not necessarily the ones that get shot, but they're the reason or they're the target. They're the ones that they were trying to get to, like the principal or teacher or a school counselor. That's the usual person that they want to torment and want to go after, you see. But if it's students, they go after, it's usually the female students. They're usually, females are much more of a target than are males, female students. So we need to know that. We need to protect our students accordingly. So it's administrators and then it's the female students that are the most likely targets. Now, other people get killed in the process, to be sure. But the identified victim, at least the, the motivating uh, victim, the motivating tor tormentor, if you will, is usually that female student that maybe have done something, maybe rejected a person, maybe ignored the advances of a student, maybe uh, just didn't play into the hands of the shooter. And uh, now they're mad and going to take it out on them, you see? You know, but it always comes down to this question here. How do you prevent it? How do you prevent? Well, school shooting is different from other kind of shootings. Maybe church shootings, uh, church shootings would be something similar to this. If you're a school, you're a school administrator, you're a school teacher, that school, your school, needs to have a threat assessment team. A threat assessment team. You're in a church, and you think you're in likely uh, possibility of being a site of shooting, you need a threat assessment team. And on that team, if the head of it or one of the primary members of that team should be a well-respected, experienced psychologist, one who can be skilled in interviewing, be skilled in diagnosing, be skilled in leading a, a, a cause of trying to identify levels of risk. A person that has been through these kind of things before, traumas and stresses and working with these kids that are at risk and working in, a, in an environment, having experience working in environments where there have been shootings or at least attacks on a population of people. Now, it might include police officers, it might include parents, it might include uh, lawyers, it might include some kind of a teacher or professor, peers, respected peers, well-placed peers. Um, a threat assessment team should have all maybe five, six, seven, eight people in it that come together regularly and look at the environment that, from a point of view, is this environment at risk in any kind of way? Are our students at risk in any kind of way? And in a church, are practitioners, are our uh, congregation at risk in any kind of way? So it's a risk assessment. And then to recommend actions to minimize the risk or to protect the student body from any kind of attack that might come and could come. So that risk assessment team is unfortunately needed today. You know, we have all kinds of 
committees and task forces and student uh, committees and teacher committees and student teacher committees all across the country in various schools. But you have a risk assessment team. That's what's recommended. And then somebody's got to take the lead and keep an eye on the community, keep an eye on the risk factors that operate within the radius of that school, maybe going outward about a mile or maybe two miles. So who are the risk people that live close to that school? Who are the people that likely could come to that school and create a problem of one kind or another? Maybe it's shooting, but not necessarily shooting. Where is the vulnerability of the school? What gates, what doors, what areas of the school are vulnerable that people could come onto the campus? And then obviously it brings up the question, should somebody in that school possess a handgun? Should there be five handguns per 25 teachers or staff members? Should there be five guns for every 10 professors or teachers or administrators? What would be the right ratio? But should there be a gun on campus to protect and to reduce the threat and to reduce the harm that would come away if, if, as compared to having no protection? That's what happens. Schools have a band against guns, and then there's no protection when somebody comes on the campus with a gun. No protection at all, other than somebody to rush upon them and get shot in the process and, as a, in an attempt to stop it. So if you're going to stop shooting, shooting that's going on in your school, you may need a gun there. It may, may need more than one. There may need to be a gun that every day it's passed on to somebody different. And nobody knows who has the gun. It's a secret, if you will. But that's kind of the monitor of the day, the gun monitor of the day. I mean, there's various ways of handling this. But that's certainly some ways that a school can be rendered more safe than it is at the present time. So, school shootings, big deal. Very serious. We need to take it serious. And it's not, the answer is not just get, take guns away from people. You know, go to a country, go to a state, go to a city, go to a neighbor and take guns away from everybody. It's not the answer at all. Because people travel, people come from other states, people come from other cities, people come from other locations and carry a big gun with them. So, reducing or removing the guns from uh, the good people in our community only puts that community at greater risk. We know that. The, the, the research is just enormous. That you reduce gun possession and you increase gun violence. Uh, it's, just, it's just there. And uh, you can't see it differently. Anybody that says that differently is just doing it for political gain and for political reasons. So take it seriously. Look at your school. Look at your school Policies, look at your school administrators, look at your school superintendent. What are they doing? What are they doing in this area of risk assessment at each school location and as a school system at large? That's the big question. Hey, good to have you join me today on the uh, podcast, The Psychology Report. Website, booksbyhedberg.com. Now, Saturday morning, 10 o'clock, you go to Central Valley Talk. That's my television program. It's entitled, Doctor, Teach Me to Parent. 
So you just go to centralvalleytalk.com on your internet. Access the station that produces my program. The program is Dr. Teach Me to Parent. It's on at 10 o'clock in the morning, Pacific Standard Time, Saturday. Every Saturday. And I talk about these kind of issues. My book, which I base the program on, Dr. Teach Me to Parent, is in my website. And that's a great book because it does discuss how families can reduce the tension and the violence within a home and within a community that their kids live in. So you may want to take a look at the book, Dr. Teach Me to Parent. Hey, see you Saturday at 10 o'clock, okay? Bye for now.